You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would unstop our ears, and that we might hear clearly the voice of our Good Shepherd Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. John is often called the apostle of love, and he continues his encouragement to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's trying to show us what love looks like in our individual lives, in our relationships, and in the life of a church family. But John is moving toward a definitive definition of love. Love is not vague for John. He wants us to understand that this love that is demonstrated in Jesus is poured into us by God's Spirit. And because he loves us with this perfect love, all fear is cast out. But what is it that they could be afraid of? Of course, there are any number of things that they and we might fear in our own lives. But if you remember, one of the main concerns of 1 John is the fear that they may not be Christians after all. They're worried about the judgment, which is why John says fear has to do with judgment. And if you have experienced the perfect love of Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about the judgment day. 1 John is about the assurance that we have as Christians that Jesus gives us eternal life, we will never perish, and no one will be able to snatch snatch us out of his hand. And the ultimate assurance for us is Jesus Christ himself, because he's not just a demonstration of love, he is love. God is love. This is where John wants us ultimately to land. Do you know God's love in Jesus Christ? Are you assured of it? Do you know that you're abiding in him and he is abiding in you? And throughout 1 John, he gives all of these tests as to this is how you can tell if you're in Christ. And we've been preaching about this all the way through the letter. And so it's worth looking back for just a moment and marking the test that John lays out for what is true assurance and what is false assurance. In the first instance, John wants us to be walking in the truth as it has been revealed by God and Jesus Christ and set down in God's word. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know God, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. John understands that there are plenty of people walking around and saying, yeah, I know God, but they don't. How can we tell? John makes a bold statement in chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of of error. But that's a bold claim to say that, that if you're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who have ears to hear are going to be able to hear it. When the gospel is preached, 
when the Jesus of the scriptures is proclaimed, do listeners recognize him or are they unable to hear because their spiritual ears are stopped? Is what is being, if what is being preached, is it recognizable to them or is it foreign? It's not just a take from certain theological perspectives. John is saying that you can expect that your faithfulness will be nonsensical to the one who follows the spirit of error. And so it's a spiritual issue. And John is saying, absolutely, you want to hold out the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's come to do. But that has to be coupled with prayer because if people are going to be given the eyes to see Jesus as he truly is, and they're going to be able to appropriate for themselves his death and resurrection, the scales have to fall from their eyes. You're not going to be able to argue anybody into a relationship with Jesus. Now, he may use your witness to help that along and to bring them to an understanding of who Jesus is, but ultimately, it's a spiritual issue, and it doesn't make sense to those who are following a spirit of error. And of course, many people who follow a spirit of error believe that they are right in what they are saying, but sincerity is no guarantee that what we are saying is the truth. Each and every single one of us is susceptible to this error. And so chapter 4 of 1 John is a good place to go if you're trying to ask questions about who God is and what he's saying to you. The editors of, the bio, of this uh, English Standard Version did a great job with the heading here because chapter 4 begins with the heading, Test the Spirits. How can you know God? How can you know what he's saying? How can you know that he's trustworthy? And so walking in the truth and walking in the light is a means by which we love one another. It's not just right doctrine for, for doctrine's sake. It's actually the loving thing to do. Love and truth go hand in hand, just as cruelty and untruth go hand in hand. John knows and we know that if we don't know who Jesus is as he has given to us in the scriptures, we don't know Jesus and we remain separated from the love of God. As Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison said, heresy is cruel. False teaching about who Jesus is hurts people and keeps them separated from the love of God. It is, in fact, one of the most unloving things that you can do for this world that he came to save. Now, John does not stop there, of course. He continues with the second test of how we love one another and find assurance in Jesus. As Zach Hicks reminded us last week, the love of God manifests itself in how we love and live with one another. John doesn't let up on this point here in chapter 4, but continues it forward by saying in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Now, a key verse in understanding what John is trying to say in chapters 3 and 4 is found in chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John isn't saying that words don't matter. Clearly, words matter a lot. 
but he is trying to get us to understand that love manifests itself in a way that goes well beyond words. Love is seen in deed and discerned as truth. The love that John is speaking about is not just a feeling. It's demonstrable. And so we all want to have that feeling of of God's love, especially when we gather together. Don't you want your church family to be a place of warmth and hospitality and welcome? And all those things are well and good. But the love that John is talking about goes far beyond that. We can say that we love one another, but that's not the real test. How do we love one another? Tertullian, an early church father who lived in North Africa, wrote of how the Romans viewed Christians. He said, uh, mimicking the Romans, look, they say, how Christians love one another and how they are ready to die for each other. The way that Christians loved one another was made manifest in their relationships so that the Roman world looked at them and were provoked to jealousy and scratching their heads thought, I can't believe how they love one another. I mean, one of the things that brought early condemnation against the Christians was their willing to love that which the Roman world said was unlovely. It was a practice in the Roman world that if a child was born deformed, or even if a child was born female, and they couldn't take care of it, to lay the child out in the woods and allow fate to take over. We're giving this child up over to the gods. It will be the gods' will whether this child lives or dies. And do you know what Christians did? They went into the woods and they took those babies home. And it must have been a difficult sight to walk through your village and to see a child with a cleft palate and wonder, was that the baby I left in the woods? who now has been adopted into a family that knows what real love is. Look how these Christians love one another and how they're ready to die for each other and to bear the ridicule of their neighbor. Because what we understand is that when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we not only have peace with God, we have peace with one another. That's one of the great miracles of, of the Christian faith is that it's not just being reconciled to God, but we now have fellowship with one another. In this world, when we talk about peace, we're not talking about real peace. So when you hear a politician say, we have peace in our time. What do they really mean when they say that? They're not speaking of true peace. They're talking about a cessation of hostilities. When they say peace, they mean we're not outwardly fighting with one another, but the truth of the matter is the hostility still remains. It's just under the surface. This world offers no peace. No way to true reconciliation in this world But with God, all things are possible. And this peace reigns in our hearts where we find that we have nothing in common 
with this other person who, named, who says that they're a Christian. That is one of the most remarkable things. Uh, Lauren was, uh, I don't, I'm like most men, I hate talking on the phone. I hate it. And, and when, uh, normally when I get off the phone, Lauren says, well, what did y'all talk about? Eh, nothing. You know, nothing. And uh, she noted after saying nothing, she said, you were on the phone over an hour with this person. Who were you talking to? And I said, Sam Mugisha, over in Rwanda. And she said, you know, Andrew, he's your best friend. Now, here's an African man who lived through the genocide, who's an engineer from a different culture, from a different place. We have nothing in common except one thing, and that one thing makes all the difference. Jesus Christ. That's how we have fellowship. That's how we have relationship. That's how we relate to one another. And all of those other differences, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, all of those things begin to fade when we realize who we are in Jesus Christ. But now, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Is that peace which surpasses all understanding made manifest in God's church? Is it demonstrated in our love for one another? And so the most loving thing, yes, that we can do is we walk in the truth We live out this love and the peace that we now have with one another. But in order for us to know the truth about God and love one another as God has loved us, we need to first know the love of God and Jesus Christ for ourselves. What does this love look like? Well, in chapter 4, verse 10, John writes, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. I mean, it wasn't as if God was sitting up in heaven and one day decided, man, humanity has done a really nice job. You know, they've just loved me to pieces, and I'm going to do them a favor. I'm going to send my son in order to die for their sins. No, the opposite. While we hated God, he sent his son into the world. When we least deserved it, God sent his son into the world. God himself condescended and showed his love in coming and dwelling amongst us. And you know what our response was? Kill him. And yet in that moment on the cross, the love of God and all of its awful and terrible agony was demonstrated before our very eyes. If you want to know how much God loves you, look at the cross. What wondrous love is this? This perfect man, God, would live and die and be raised for me 
who didn't ask for it, who didn't deserve it. And yet God in his grace and free mercy poured himself out for me in order that I might live. John uses a big word here to describe this. It's propitiation. And it's a beautiful word that the New Testament uses to describe what it is that Jesus did for us on the cross. In the first instance, it means that Jesus showed us what love looks like. You know, Paul would say elsewhere, you know, it's one thing to die for an honorable person, but to die for someone who's dishonorable, who doesn't deserve it, that's really something. It's a remarkable way that God shows us that he loves us by dying for us. But more than that, Jesus' death on the cross is an atonement for our sins in the same way the Old Testament pointed to the sacrifices so that people of the people of Israel could relate to God. Jesus was the Paschal Lamb that has been sacrificed for us. But once and for all, it's not a continual sacrifice as it was in the Old Testament, but it's once and for all finished. And Jesus has now taken sin upon himself, and now we can have fellowship with God the Father and be made his children. And even beyond a demonstration of love and an atonement for sin, we see that the judgment and wrath that God has for sin that ought to fall upon us justly falls completely on Jesus. And so it's no wonder that Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the embodiment of love. He sets the example, he deals with sin, and he deals with judgment and condemnation. The great Scottish theologian Thomas Torrance, out of a sense of mission that was formed by his experience as the child of a missionary family in China, uh, felt the call to serve as a chaplain during World War II. And there on a battlefield, he came across a young soldier, scarcely 20 years old, who was mortally wounded. And this dying soldier asked Torrance Padre, is God really like Jesus? And Torrance responded, Jesus is the only God that there is. The God who has come to us in Jesus, shown his face to us, and poured out his love to us as our Savior. And as he prayed and commended this dying soldier to the Lord, the young man died. If God is love, is God really like Jesus? Yes and amen. There's an urgency to this love. Christians earnestly seek to walk in the light, to love one another, and by his grace to abide in him. If you're a Christian this morning, God has poured this gift of love into your heart by his spirit. We experience it imperfectly because of our sin, which so often leads us astray. But we come back to Jesus. We live it out imperfectly because of our sin, but we come back to Jesus. We come to Jesus because he's the only one, it turns out, 
who really does love us. And so when the world is against us, when our friends and family fail us, when it seems like our brothers and sisters in Christ have even abandoned us, we remember that we abide in him and that our present and our future are held secure in nail-pierced hands. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we do pray that you would come and dwell with us, that you would help us to love one another in truth and in deed. And, Lord, when we question your love for us, we pray that we would look upon Jesus, the propitiation for our sins. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.